0: We've been going through a series here, um, kind of going through some of the main concepts of The Fifth Way, the book that I wrote, but um, something else happened this week that kind of took my mind off into another direction, and so I want to try to share that with you, and I hope that I can do it justice this morning, um, because it, it lives really well in my mind. We'll see how it comes out uh, in the airways today, but um, the day before we left uh, for San Diego, Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, substitute for a pastor at another treatment center. He had two Bible studies that he does every morning, um, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock with the men, and then 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock with the women. And I was actually supposed to do Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then they had some construction, so I ended up only with one day with them. So it's kind of like, okay, one day with this group of people, I may never see them again. Actually, I'll see them on Tuesdays, which is good, but it's a whole different trip then. Um, What is it that I want to say? Think about that. If you had one hour with a group, one hour with somebody, and you wanted to try to get something across to them that would help them, especially in this situation where they're in recovery, they're looking for help, what is it that you would say? And I couldn't think of anything better than to start right with the Beatitudes, to start right with this picture that Jesus gives us of the final product of someone who lives in kingdom. What do they look like? What are their attributes? And he takes this person and he just kind of like turns them around in 3D and gives us eight different facets of what this person looks like. And I tied it into some other things. And you know what? It was so interesting and nice to be with a group of people that I'd never taught before. All my jokes were new. You know it was great you know i could I could use all the analogies that you probably have heard a couple of times by now and and it was really interesting the men 's group was small and um, and it was it was still pretty lively, and we had a good time and, and uh, people wanted to talk afterwards, but I had to move right to the the other floor to go to meet with the women and the women's group was bigger there's about 20 women and they had them all at this really long table and they stuck me at the end so I'm looking down this long like narrow channel with all these faces all the way down and uh, it was really generally well received you know people were were excited the, the ladies were excited they were, they were open there's always a few that you could tell just weren't there you know, they, they were just not happening, they were not really paying attention, they were kind of checked out. There were others that were really enthusiastic at the beginning and about the half hour mark, they start to fade and they have to go up and go to the bathroom or do this or that and they get fidgety and the whole thing. And then there were other people that were just with me the entire time. They were participating, they were, they were making comments, they were also um, just giving me that eye contact that showed me that they are with me. And then there was a few that wanted to talk afterwards, and I had some time, because we weren't trying to get to some other, another session right away. And so we just talked for a while, and I told them, if there's something that is really intriguing to you, because they said, can you come back, can you come back? And I said, well, this is just a one-shot as far as I know. But you know, we've got our website, and you can go online, and you can pull down sets of the Beatitudes. They're all there. The Lord's Prayer and some lot of things. And they said, oh yeah, we're definitely going to do that. We're definitely going to do that. And it was all very exciting and very flattering that they were so excited. Now, I have no idea how many are really ever going to crack that website. I have no idea if anyone is going to remember anything that was said tomorrow. I have have no idea about that. All I knew was in the moment what we were doing and where we were going with this. And it struck me as I was thinking about this that this is exactly what Jesus was describing in the parable of the sower and the seeds. The exact phenomenon. And maybe, as some people like to call this parable, it's the parable of the four soils, which I think is really more descriptive. Because it's really about the four different types of soil on which the seed falls. And I was witnessing that in real time. I had these 20 ladies. Some were just not there at all. Some were there for a while and you know, panned out. And then others were there with me to the end, but I don't know what they're going to be doing in terms of really... If we could get one person out of that 20 to catch fire, to stay with it, to get to the point where she becomes transformed by the love of God, transformed by walking this way of Jesus, that's an amazing thing, you know. Jesus seems to cut the fo- the soils into four, so we're led to believe that 25% of the time we're going to hit that sweet spot, but I don't think it's really that high, you know. He doesn't really give us percentages. He just said there are four different types, and I wanted to kind of go through this parable because as we start this new year I think it's got something to tell us it's got somewhere we can go to start to understand what it is that we can do and how we can live in a different maybe attitude or or notion or take that we can have on our walk that can help us so that this time next year we're at a different place a different place that we can really feel that we can see the effect of and that really is the goal of all of this you know so if you take a look, let's just go ahead and read it, or at least read the first section of it. It's in your bulletins, and I'm sure James will get it up on the, uh, on the screens. Take a look at Matthew 13, verse 1. If you've got your books, go ahead and open up. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then he says this lovely phrase that he repeats over and over through the Gospels, He who has ears, let him hear. This is Jesus' call. This is his way. This is an Aramaic phrase, an Aramaic idiom, a Hebrew idiom. You know, Listen up. You know, Pay attention here. Something really important has happened. Sometimes I say you've got to put this one on your refrigerator, you know same sort of thing. Take note, Mark this. because if you can look at this in a different way, if you can really hear what's going on here, it's going to have the depth, the profundity to be able to transform your lives. You know, when you do this teaching bit for a while, it becomes really obvious when you have someone, you know you're connected with them and when you're not. You know, And you know the moment that you lose them. It's sort, of, it's sort of like your wife knows you when you're talking to them. The moment that you kind of zone out, she just knows. You do this for all, and you get that. But I'll tell you what, it's not so easy to see the sincerity or the longevity of the people that are with you the entire time. That's something that you just have to wait and see. It's nothing that's going to be part of your conversation. And it's maybe nothing that you'll ever know. You have a conversation... People go out and they do what they do and you never know what actually happened. But it's okay. It just takes time. Just like the sower who puts out the seeds has to wait and see which ones are really going to come to fruition. Which ones are going to go the distance of the planting season and make it all the way to harvest. And in that cost-benefit analysis that's being done, I suppose, by the farmer, he throws out the seed. Those seeds that fall in the good sale are going to pay for all the other ones that don't. I've often heard that um, this is sort of an inefficient way to farm, that this farmer is kind of a sloppy farmer. He just throws the seeds out there indiscriminately, you know, and he doesn't care where it's going, all these different places. Well, besides the fact that it's a metaphor, you know, there's there's also a literal way that we can look at this because Jesus was speaking to a specific group of people who knew what farming was like on the hillsides of Galilee. And the Galilee in the first century, and even today, has lots of stretches of very thin soil over basalt rock. You know, the rock floor is very close to the surface. And the terrain, you know, is very, very hilly. And so it's not really easy to terrace or farm. The weather patterns are changing constantly. You know, something that would be taking root at one time of day with certain moisture and wind conditions won't at another time. And so really, how is it that you prepare the soil? How much time are you going to spend trying to determine which is the good soil and which is not and then you sow know, only on the good soil? It's more efficient to go ahead and scatter the seeds on the parcel of land that you've got to work and just see what happens. And this is what Jesus is talking about. And when we take it back into the, the area of metaphor where Jesus is talking about in terms of our understanding of this particular story, how in the world do we prepare someone for deep spirituality anyway. How do we prepare that soil? How do we do it? And how much time are we going to try to do it as opposed to just interacting, just living the Word and speaking the Word and seeing what happens in real time? See, I think this is where Jesus is trying to get us to. And the thing is, is that a parable itself is a preparation for the soil. That's what it functions at. And Jesus' disciples then ask him, right after this, why the parables? Why are you speaking all you know, in these stories, in these metaphors? Why don't you be more direct is really the subtext here. Let's read again, starting at verse 10. And the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has... To him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. It's a pretty tough saying of Jesus. We're going to have to look at this in a second. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, Jesus says to his followers, because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Doesn't this sound exclusionary? Doesn't it sound like God's already picked out the losers and the winners in advance? Then what are we doing here? I mean, look at what he says. Why do you speak them in perils? To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been granted. And what about this? Whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Where is Jesus going with this? See, it's so difficult for us to understand phrases like this because they come to us from a different context, a different language, a different worldview. We've talked in here about idiomatic expressions. And just to refresh, an idiom, an idiomatic phrase is a phrase that you cannot deduce the definition of the meaning of by simply summing the definitions of the words in the phrase it doesn't work it's like it's raining cats and dogs we know what that means, but to someone outside our culture or if they dug up your notebook 2,000 years from now, you know what is that person going to be imagining from that phrase quadrupeds falling from the sky right it's because it you can't get the meaning from the words themselves. Hebrew uh, is like that. Aramaic is like that. Every language is like that. And so we have to know what these idioms mean. And if you look at the not just the canonical Gospels, and not just the canon of the Bible itself, but if you look at all of the ancient literati- literature, Uh, that Judaism has produced, you start to see these patterns of speech and understand what they mean. And scholars have done this. They're the ones who get down into the weeds and spend years just researching all of this. And they find that there is an idiomatic style in Hebrew. Now see if you can get this. To present results or consequences as purpose. See what I'm saying? To present the results or the consequences of something as the purpose that God has. But it's just a style. It's an idiomatic style. It's a form of hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? It's an exaggeration to make a rhetorical point, so you really exaggerate the point to really drive the point home. Jesus uses hyperbole all the time, this giant language that he uses. And the Hebrews do it too. So take a look. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, But to them it has not been granted. You know, maybe one of my favorite ones of these is when Jesus tells us that if you forgive your brother and sister, then your Father in Heaven will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your brother and sister, then neither will your Father in Heaven forgive you. Okay? Now it sounds like forgiveness is conditional. Acceptance and love is conditional again. But we've been told over and over again that it's not. That grace is a free gift so that none may boast. So what's going on here? Is it about our performance? God's acceptance based on performance or not. This is one of those moments, one of those phrases, where the result is presented as a purpose. It makes God look like he's the doer, he's the actor, he's the one who is granting or withholding. But the truth is, the sense of this is, if you forgive your brother and your sister, then you're already forgiven. Because forgiveness to the Jew is about freedom. And the freeing of all of that resentment and bitterness, all of that stuff that enslaves us and keeps our minds going, is the forgiveness. And we will never, ever experience that until we have let go, which is the forgiveness. God doesn't do it to us. We do it to ourselves. God doesn't even grant it to us. We grant it to ourselves. Notice that Jesus never says, I forgive you. He says, you have been forgiven. Your faith has made you well. Because the truth of the matter is, we are always forgiven. That is God's eternal posture because he is love and is forgiveness. Do you see how this works? Let me try another one. Many are called, but few are chosen. All right? Now that sounds like God has already picked out the winners and losers. Many are called, but he's only going to choose a few. Once again, the result is Is being presented as a purpose. The truth of the matter and the truth of uh, the sense of this saying is many are called, but few choose to be chosen. You get how that is? We are the actor. We are the doer. The result is the consequence of our actions, not God's, because he's always in the pouring out position. He never withholds. So take a look at this again. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Sounds like God is withholding. But what's the real sense of this? His followers were the ones with the ears to hear. His followers were the ones with the desire to drop everything that they had at the shore and follow Him. That's why it was granted because they followed the free gift that was being offered to everyone indiscriminately, to anyone to whom it has not been granted, is because they didn't pick it up. They didn't have the ears to hear. They weren't ready for whatever reason. And maybe it wasn't through no fault of their own. Maybe they were traumatized as a kid and they just can't trust anybody right now. We see that all the time. Maybe they were taught something so rigidly that nothing else can seep in right now. They're just not ready. That brain is so hard packed, nothing gets through. It just bounces right off and the birds come and take it away. But the truth of the matter is, is that we do the granting or the not granting because Jesus is calling everyone. The Father is calling everyone. So this one, for whoever has, more shall be given, but whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away. Again, it's not being done to this person, it's not being done to us. We do it to ourselves. It's just a depiction of the way life is. When we find genuine meaning and purpose in life, whatever we have is multiplied. Don't you don't you feel that yourselves? When you find meaning in something, even if it's something that is pleasurable anyway, it just multiplies. It just I love playing music. But when I play music in a setting like this, and I really find the connection with my God, the experience of playing music, more is given. But if we don't find that meaning and purpose, have you seen people just wither on the vine and just completely lose their way, their direction, their zest or their zeal for life, to become pessimistic, to become people that you can hardly stand to be around? Because even what they did have was taken away because they weren't able to move into this spiritual place and find the true meaning of life. God doesn't do this to us, we do it to ourselves. And it's so important to understand. Jesus is not being exclusionary here, He's just showing us life as it is. This is the way it is. So, what's the point with the parables? You know? The parables. And it's interesting, maybe just to to take a look at what parable means. Because in Hebrew, a parable can mean the story. It actually means an extension of something, to extend something, to move it beyond. So the story extends and moves out beyond just a straight explanation. Maybe that's a way to understand it. And it extends out and it provides a covering for something. So this word, this parable, can mean parable as we understand that term. It can also mean a riddle. So here's the interesting thing about parables. They can uncover and communicate truth or they can cover it over and hide it at the same time. It can be revealed and it can be hidden. Now why is that? Because the real deep truths of life cannot be understood directly your brains. An intellectual cognitive understanding is not going to be able to process. Remember last week we talked about those crazy contradictions, the paradoxes of life, the things that have to sit side by side unresolved and unharmonized, the things that we're just not going to understand in this life. If we were so focused on trying to figure those things out, we're going to miss the boat here. The parable presents those kinds of paradoxes, those kinds of non-linear storylines and sequences that we can't process the way we normally do. And so sometimes the parable is illuminating something, giving you an immersive experience to allow you to move in. And sometimes it's just messing with your head. And that's the whole point. Because if it can re- erase preconceptions that are blocking your growth, in other words, the things you think you know that are now just in the way, maybe they served a purpose 20 years ago, but they've long outlived their usefulness. Now they're just standing in your way. The rigidly w- way that you were taught, I should say the rigid way you were taught, if I'm going to be grammatical about it, the rigid way that you were taught is now standing in the way of getting the next piece that Jesus has to offer, because it's a wall between you. And so the parable can be one of the, the elements that starts to deconstruct, to dismantle that hard pack, break up that hard packed soil. It communicates and illuminates and sometimes it reveals and gives you a riddle that your mind can't untwist because it's not meant to be untwisted and understood. It's meant to be experienced and lived. whole different way of looking at life. So, this reality of life that Jesus is talking about, these parables, this matlah in Aramaic, to stretch out, to extend, revealing, hiding, Because without the unlearning first of the things that we think we know, we're just going to be blocked from what Jesus is trying to give us. It's that same idea. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. Whatever we're clinging to is what the parable is trying to help to dismantle. And Jesus uses them so much. For these people who are not yet ready, for these people to whom This deeper understanding has not yet been granted because they're not yet ready to pick it up. They can't conceive of it. They're either actively resisting it or it just goes right over their head. For people like that, the stories are meant to immerse them in a new pot of soil. And if they'll stay with it long enough, if they'll let it continue to ruminate, to work on it, to just be a part of their lives, it's going to do the job. It's going to take them on a journey that will take them to a new place. And so Jesus then interprets the parable for his disciples. And starting at verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And so Jesus breaks it down for them because they're having trouble with this, right? He breaks it down, but even the interpretation itself is still metaphorical. It's still figurative, at least. And I think we can get some... Even more illumination, if we just take a look at a few key words. You know, in that first one, the evil one comes. In Mark and Luke, it's Satan comes. It's left untranslated from the Aramaic. Satana in Aramaic, and Hebrew. Or Hasatan, the Satan. It's really a title. It means adversary. It means anyone who comes, or anything, I suppose, that comes and diverts us, distracts us, takes us sideways. You know, takes us off the rails, go astray, turn aside. This is what is meant by that. And if you mate that with the idea of the birds, the birds, parata in Aramaic, means to fly about. It comes from the verb that means to fly about, to flutter, to squander, to dissipate. All of these things. Think of someone who's ADD. The mind is fluttering about, moving about everything is dissipated everything is diffused there is no ability to concentrate to focus to stay on point some of us are willfully like that some of us are just like that naturally but either way that inability to concentrate keeps us always moving sideways we can't stay on the beam remember the faith walk is to continue to live in a consistent direction as if something is already true how can you do that if you're bouncing about all the time So one of the things, I'm not trying to take anything away from Satan as an actual being, but what I am saying is that double think this. Because it's too easy for us to say, oh, Satan did it. The devil made me do it. It is no longer my responsibility. Just like God is the actor, now Satan is the actor. No, we're still the actor. Always. There is no power that satana has over us that we don't give him in the first place. It is still our choice to make if we choose to stay focused, if we choose to stay in a concentrated place, we can overcome these distractions. We can overcome these pulls. And so still, the choice remains with us. The second one, rock, su'ah, means to stop up or to obstruct. But metaphorically or figuratively, in Aramaic, in Hebrew, it it refers to a closed heart or hard-headed stubbornness. Think about that, you know. It's the holding on to old beliefs. It's holding on to the way things always have been. That's the rocky soil that doesn't allow anything else to permeate. Again, our choice. Not God's. Our choice. The thorns, Kuba, comes from a verb that meant to, means to feel pain, to feel sorrow. It refers to something that arrests our natural growth something that holds us back. This would be like the holding on to our victimhood. When we're hurt, when we're traumatized, when life mugs us, if we hold on to that position, if we continue to hold on as if we had no choice in the matter, we have now been damaged, we can now do nothing else, this is our track for the rest of our lives because something outside of our own power and scope changed us That is the thorns that come and choke us out. We have a choice. We are not victims. We can be victimized in the moment, but then the moment passes and our choice reasserts itself. Can we make that choice? Can we not let the thorns come and choke us out? This is what Jesus is talking about. Holding on to old beliefs, holding on to victimhood. These are choices that we can make. They are not being done to us. Now, all of you are here by choice, right? And some of you keep coming back week after week. Amazing. It's great. (laughs) So, we would assume then that you all are the good soil, right? You have ears to hear, yes? Because you're coming back. You're here by choice. I think I'd like to say that probably the greatest disservice to this parable has been the interpretation that it's about believers and unbelievers. That it's sort of binary. It's either on or it's off. The first three bad soils are the unbelievers, the ones who just don't make it, the ones who don't get in. And the good soil is the, the believers, the people who are now saved. You know? We have that simple kind of view in things. And it sets up this sort of us and them sort of scenario you know, yeah, we're the good soil. What's the matter with all you people out there? You know, and we make that with the narrow way and the gate, which is also misinterpreted so often. And we can get off on a totally wrong, wrong tangent here. I want to submit to you that this parable is not just about different types of people, although it can be that. But it's also about the different parts of ourselves. You see? In recovery, there's a concept about the interior, the internal committee. Lenny uh, likes to use that phrase a lot. He always talks about his committee as talking to him. What's he talking about when he says that? You know? It's kind of like that uh, you got the little devil on this shoulder and the little angel on this shoulder and they're talking to you and you're trying to decide what to do and the pros and cons are going on. You know? it's, It's that idea that the Hebrews had themselves that there is an internal community as well as an external community. And that our goal in life is to get those two communities to come into unity, to function as multiple things being one. And then that our internal community mates with our external community and that becomes unified as well. But the truth of the matter is we're all fractured and fragmented, aren't we? Is there anyone out there that feels like you are completely one, completely integrated, That all your parts sing with the same voice from the same sheet of music? Or are there parts of you that pull you this way and that way? Do you know someone that you trust implicitly in one area and don't trust them as far as you can throw them in another? You know, I trust this person with this thing, but I can't trust them to show up on time because I just know they're not going to do it. You know, or I'll trust them over here, but man, I'd never go into a business with this person. You know, we know that people can be more or less completed in one area and still struggling in so many others. It's part of the the way of life and, and the way life goes. It's this understanding that tells us that inside ourselves are all four soils at once, simultaneously, acting on our lives. Now, I can't tell you how long it took me to wrestle with these kinds of concepts When I first started, I would think that I had something. I would think I really had put a stake through the heart of this one thing. You know, but something else is popping up over here. Kind of like a balloon. You squeeze it here and it pops out there. Squeeze it there, it pops out there. What about Paul? Romans 7. Remember his rant? You know, I don't understand the things I do. I got all these things I want to do and I don't do them. And then the things I do are the things I hate. You know, so if I can't do the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do, you know, and he goes into this long, you know, really neurotic rant and then he finally ends up saying, what a wretched man I am. Isn't that just perfect? Paul has all four soils. It's Paul, you know, the father of the modern church, the writer of most of the books of the New Testament, struggling away with parts of the soil that is not yet ready for what Jesus is trying to give him. See, this is what we have to understand. It's us. It's not us and them. It's us. Can we start to use this notion, this understanding, that there are still unfinished parts of us, that the stone is not yet smooth, that there are areas in which the seed is not penetrating, is not yet ready, and focus on those areas, being able to see when they rear their heads in our lives and in our moments, and understand that there is a place here now that which I can work. I've identified it. God's word has identified this part that still is holding on to victimhood, holding on to old beliefs and ideas, is stubborn and hard-headed, and won't let go, even though in other areas I'm doing beautifully well. And this isn't to say that we have to be completely perfect and done before we can do any earthly good in the kingdom. No, we just move out as imperfect as we are, but we don't have to stay that way. If we realize that it's not just on or off, saved or unsaved, believer or unbeliever, that we're all a mixed bag. And Jesus is speaking to us. He's speaking to his first disciples and telling them, take a look. Have ears to hear. See where this is penetrating and where it's not. See where your interior committee is still at odds with yourself and fighting with you. Check your emotions, especially the negative ones. They're going to give you that insight. They're going to lead you like a laser to those unfinished places, that unfinished business. Every one of us is all four soils at once. And we know this about ourselves if we really take a look. We've got these strongholds, these beaten down paths, hard-packed soil and rocks and thorns. Stone is not yet smooth. So in this new year, I would hope that we could start to grow those new ears. Grow those ears that Jesus says we need in order to really hear. Become willing to let the riddles, (laughs) the paradoxes, the crazy contradictions of life, the things that we work so hard to resolve that we shouldn't be working so hard to resolve, just let them play, let them be, embrace that paradox, embrace that unharmonized part of life, allow it to be. Allow ourselves not to have to have everything figured out, to be, to play in that unknown and begin to develop the trust in the face of the unknown, in the face of the lack of clarity. Because once we can do that, everything changes. If we can begin to trust without the clarity, without the knowledge, without the sense of a risk-free decision, choice, environment, circumstance, now we are entering into the realm of Talia, of the child that Jesus said is prerequisite to living in kingdom. And if you think about everything that we painted here in terms of what this particular parable can tell us, it brings us right back to Talia which means child and bondservant at the same time. The attributes of both are what is prerequisite to being able to live this fearless life of love and connection. We have to be able to do this. This year, our prayer, I hope, will be among all of us that we continue to embrace the parables around us Hear Jesus' words taking us deeper and deeper into a trust walk, not a clarity walk, a trust walk with our Lord that will take us deeper and deeper into just being okay within our skins, knowing that everything somehow is going to be all right, that we can remain as excited as those newcomers, those people that I was teaching last week, those men and women, so excited to hear something new. Can we retain that? That when we hear something new that hasn't hit one hard-packed area of our soil, that we can see that as new and become excited about it and not become so jaded that we just don't see it anymore because we think we've got it all figured out. Can we remain as excitable as a newcomer but at the same time as perseverant, and as faithful and as steadfast as the old-timer. That, too, is paradox. And unless we can do that, then at this time next year, there won't be any change. There won't be any new effect of our lives and the people around us and our own attitudes and ability to enjoy the ride of our lives. So that's the prayer. Father, take us there. Let's pray. Father, take us there. We know that there is some pain involved. We know that there is discomfort involved in letting go of these things, those hard-packed areas of our lives. But more and more we want all the soil, all our interior soil to be soft. And dark and rich and ready for anything that you have to give us. Help us to become discerning. Help us to become aware. Help us to ruthlessly look at ourselves and see where that place is that needs to be broken up. And then to do the work and to be consistent and to have fun in the process and realize that every moment can be hilarious and cheerful and exciting and exuberant even in the midst of our imperfection that it's only enjoying our imperfection that we can do this at all. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for never withholding anything. Help us to see that you're not in the business of withholding anything so that we can trust you more and more. And we love you and thank you for this new year and everyone in it and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.